With great foresight, Vernon saw that the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death was approaching in November 2013, and he thought that the Abbey should put on some kind of memorial event, maybe a lecture or a symposium or some such thing. So he came up to Oxford to have lunch with me to discuss ideas, and we indeed put together a plan for a day symposium. And in the course of that discussion, I, I said to him, isn't it time to revisit the idea, which had been broached once or twice in the past, of memorialising C.S. Lewis in Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey. Vernon said that the time could be ripe. So uh, I put together a little uh, tranche of um, signatories, and together we wrote a letter to the Dean of Westminster, putting this idea to him. And marvellously, uh, as Vernon predicted, uh, the response was positive. Uh, and the whole thing was planned for the precise date of the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death, namely the 22nd of November 2013, and the day symposium of lectures and panel discussion would be the day before, 21st. And the symposium attracted about 600 people. The, the Abbey service the following day, there are nearer a thousand people from all over the world, young, old, rich, poor, male, female, educated, simple. Uh, it was marvelous and there'll never be another occasion like it. Walter Hooper played an important part, uh, not only in generating this, the conditions under which such a, a memorial might come about through his 50 years of service to Lewis's legacy as editor and biographer, but also a very personal role on the day itself in being the first person to honor the new memorial by laying a, a lovely bouquet of roses on, on the stone. Very good to see you here tonight, Walter. Thank you for coming. Another person to mention is Steve Beebe. Um, the front cover of this book is a photograph of C.S. Lewis that Steve bought at auction. Is that right? He bought it at Blackwell's. Bought it at Blackwell's, okay. But Steve is a great collector of Lewis memorabilia and first editions, and he very kindly allowed us permission to use this as the, the front cover. Thank you, Steve. Uh, who else is there? I think I've probably covered everybody. There were going to be two other contributors to the book who were going to be present tonight, Stephen Prickett and Michael Ramsden. Both, unfortunately, had to pull out today. That's such short notice. It was most disappointing. One because of an unexpected funeral and one because of unexpected travel problems. So they send their apologies. Um, so that gives you a brief thumbnail sketch of the origins of the <coughs> Westminster celebrations. Unbeknownst to us, Vernon and I, um, Magdalen College, Cambridge, was planning a day conference on the 23rd of November, most conveniently the following day after the Westminster service. So lots of us decamped from Westminster to Magdalen College, Cambridge, for a, a day conference on Lewis as critic. And all the proceedings of that day conference are included in this book, um, including a marvelous piece by Lewis's successor as professor of medieval Renaissance English at Cambridge, Helen Cooper. An excellent piece by Rowan Williams on Lewis's Preface to Paradise Lost, and several other most interesting worthy pieces. Um, in addition to the Cambridge celebrations, that very same night, the 23rd of November, here in Oxford, Magdalen College Oxford held a, an event, which I think Walter spoke at, and Rowan Williams, and Alastair McGrath. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. But we have only Walter's contribution uh, from that event, because Alistair McGrath and Rowan Williams are already well represented within the pages of this book. Um, 
And to, to round it out, um, bringing things back to this society, we also include the address that was given at this society that same week by William Lane Craig, who gave a, a philosophical <coughs> approach, um, which is perhaps only slightly tinged with Lewisian thought, uh, <laughs> but is nonetheless interesting for that, I hope. But the piece I want to read you a, a, a section from uh, is from none of those things that I've just mentioned, but rather from the composer Paul Meelon. When we knew we were having this service in the Abbey, the director of music at the Abbey, James O'Donnell, said this would be a prime opportunity to commission a piece of work, to set to music one of Lewis's poems, maybe. Uh, and that indeed is what happened. Paul Meelon, the, uh, the Aberdeen professor of music and the composer of most famously, the motet from the royal wedding in 2011, Prince William's marriage to Catherine Middleton, um, had this marvellous motet, Ubi Caritas, uh, composed by Paul Milor. He immediately agreed to uh, accept this commission, and he set to music one of Lewis's poems, Loves as Warm as Tears, and he kindly contributed to this book uh, his own reflections on composing that anthem. And I want to read you really just a page and a bit of his three-page contribution, if you will bear with me. So this is Paul Milor. He says, the reason I first came across the works of C.S. Lewis, I nearly drowned when I was nine. I grew up on the Isle of Anglesey in North Wales, and one day, tagging along after my older brother, who was going canoeing, I managed somehow to fall into the river. Not being the best swimmer, I was soon in difficulties, trying to get out of the water, but failing repeatedly, and being carried along by the current. I kept going under and coming up again, and this gradually got more and more serious. It probably lasted less than a minute or so, but it felt like, like, a, like a long time. Eventually there came a moment when I remember thinking to myself, I'm dying. And at the same moment I had the sensation of unbelievable warmth. There was suddenly no fear at all. It was an utterly remarkable feeling. In fact, it was a religious experience. All at once, I somehow knew that God existed, if I can put it like that. I just knew that death wasn't to be feared. Though what I probably said to myself at the time was something like, this isn't so bad. <laughs> An elderly couple happened to be passing by on a riverbank, and they reached in and pulled me out. My brother came running, and I was taken home, where I mentioned the strange sensation I'd had. My father <coughs> asked me if I'd ever read the Narnia Chronicles. <laughs> and I said no. <coughs> but soon afterwards began to do so, starting with The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe. And I began to find some answers to the questions I was asking at that stage about the nature of the experience I'd been through. <coughs> Lewis became important to me, and when I finished reading Thank you. Now, my father brought me a copy of Lewis's collected poems. I would have been about 11 by this point. Looking back at the copy he got me, I see that I scribbled ideas next to particular lines and phrases, indicating passages that I might one day set to music. One was this, from the prologue to Lewis's First volume of poetry, Spirits in Bondage. In my coracle of verses I will sing of lands unknown, sing about the hidden country fresh and full of quiet green, sailing over seas uncharted to a port that none has seen. 
So when, many years later, the invitation came from James O'Donnell to write something for the Lewis Memorial Service at Westminster Abbey, I was more than delighted. The dean, John Hall, suggested three possible poems that might be set to music, and the one he liked best was the one also I preferred, Loves as Warm as Tears. I spent about four weeks reading it over and over, feeling the words and sensing the stresses of the phrases, meditating upon it. I fell in love with the poem for its beautiful, warm expression of Christian life and love. And as always when I'm setting words to music, I tried to find ways of bringing light, musical light, to what I was reading. The danger is that you take something away from the poem when you set it, but my aim is always to add something new, something that brings out the inner contours of the piece. And he goes on for another page and a half, but um, we better not get into that. I want to leave you um, dangling on the end of that, that nice little taster. Um, I think it's most extraordinary that the, the one composer that we approached, he was our first choice. Uh, we never really considered any other composer should have had this particular personal experience with C.S. Lewis and have, from an early age, been wanting to set Lewis to music. Um, it felt absolutely <coughs> providential. So I commend that particular part of the book to you and the book as a whole. And now I turn over to Peter S. Williams, who will say a little bit about his perspective on the project. Thank you, Michael. Uh, and I'm going to uh, do that by reading a few passages from the Kindle version. Just <laughs> 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 to point out to you, it is now available on uh, Kindle. And one of the advantages of getting it uh, in the Kindle version is you get colour photography uh, inside the book at various stages. There are a few photos from the uh, service and uh, the memorial stone and so on. So if you want colour photography, you have to get the, the Kindle uh, version. Let me uh, start by reading a couple of passages from uh, my preface. First of all, a uh, personal anecdote, and then a passage that actually Michael and I jointly worked on uh, that gives uh, quite a nice overview of the uh, eclectic uh, content of this book. Looking through the cloakroom window, I saw, looming over the quad, Elizabeth Tower, the clock tower that houses the bell known as Big Ben. I was privileged to be staying overnight in the guest quarters of Westminster Abbey's deanery, having played a role earlier that day in the Abbey Institute Symposium at St. Margaret's Church, celebrating the legacy of C.S. Lewis as a Christian apologist. Alistair McGrath and Malcolm Guide gave scintillating presentations on the intellectual and imaginative aspects of Lewis's apologetics, after which Michael Ward chaired a series of mini-presentations from William Lane Craig, Michael Ramsden, Jeanette Sears, Judith Wolfe, and myself, and a panel discussion about what contemporary Christian apologetics can learn from Lewis. And all of that material is uh, in the book here. All this was topped off by a sumptuous evening meal hosted by the Dean, Dr. John Hall. And upon seeing the amount of chocolate involved in dessert, Michael Ramsden quit that everyone at Westminster Abbey must really love Jesus. <laughs> because after we eat this, we'll all be meeting him a lot sooner. <laughs> Altogether, uh, jumping a few passages here, these different contributions uh, present a detailed picture of the way Lewis was commemorated in the United Kingdom on the 50th anniversary of his death. 
their generic variety, their interview, address, panel discussion, homily, article, lecture, personal memoir, poetry, aptly reflects the breadth of Lewis's own output. The numerous fields of expertise represented by our contributors, theology, pastoralia, apologetics, literary criticism, literary history, philosophy, psychology, biography, journalism, music, creative writing, reflects not only the broad sweep of his own interests, but also the extraordinarily wide reach of his legacy. Editors of collected volumes like this one often try to impose uniformity on disparate perspectives in order to uh, thematize their materials. We make no such attempt, but rather consider it a virtue that what follows is so very various. The diversity and colorfulness of these pages deliberately mirrors that of Lewis's own life and work. For as the inscription in his memorial bears witness, he did not just believe in Christianity, but also in everything else. And indeed, the, the verse uh, on the memorial stone is that famous line from Lewis about believing in Christianity as he believes in the sun, not just because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And I'd like to um, just read, if I may, the little contribution I made at the, the beginning of the panel discussion uh, in the symposium, uh, where we were asked to, I think it was in 500 words or less, describe uh, how we viewed uh, Lewis's contribution to uh, Christian uh, apologetics. Researching my book, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists, which came out in 2013, it struck me that Lewis had been the old-fashioned kind of atheist who takes philosophy seriously. As an atheist, Lewis rejected the scientism characteristic of modernity. One might say that the atheism of Lucretius saved Lewis from the positivism of A.J. Eyre. Moreover, Lewis didn't lurch from the mistakes of modernism to the mistakes of postmodernism. His love of philosophy produced neither a narrow rationalism nor a romantic anti-rationalism, but a pre-modern wisdom. Lewis knew that reason requires faith in rational insight and he recognized the value of empirical facts without rejecting the transcendent facts of truth, goodness, and beauty. Lewis attended to arguments against naturalism and for theism. <clears throat> Mere Christianity popularized the sort of moral argument for God developed in W.R. Sawley's Gifford Lectures on Moral Values and the Idea of God. However, it's the reasons that Lewis gave for abandoning a naturalistic worldview that resonate most incessantly today. It's not only in reading, say, Alvin Plantinga's anti-naturalism argument from evolution that one is reminded of Lewis's anti-naturalistic apologetic in Miracles. It's frequently in reading non-theistic scholars like Thomas Nagel, or Anthony O'Hare, or Raymond Tallis. One can't separate Lewis's philosophy from his fiction. His philosophy often uses story to elicit rational insight. Consider his uh, essay, Meditation in a Toolshed. His fiction
fiction fleshes out a philosophical skeleton, allowing us to drink in the atmosphere of a philosophy. I particularly enjoy the abolition of man through that hideous strength. Lewis teaches us the importance of being nourished by a community of scholarship, including voices of dissent, jointly dedicated to following the argument wherever it leads. And that was the motto of the Socratic Club. Finally, Lewis helps us transcend the chronological snobbery of our own age through the reading of old books, not least those by Lewis himself. So. All right. I was very pleased to be there. I had um, studied briefly with Michael at, um, here at Oxford about a year before and had followed it, uh, followed the the development of, of what was happening, going to happen at Westminster Abbey, hoping very much I could come and ended up being able to come with my mother and brother. But I think something that really struck me during the time, I remember having this moment standing in the, the queue outside of Westminster Abbey early in the morning, I think it was early, it felt very cold to my mind, it was very early, I remember clutching my coffee, um, and just being struck by having these conversations with people from such different backgrounds, so many different walks of life, so many different places, you, you mentioned the diversity of the people, and that standing in line just really struck me, and I was standing there thinking, what is it about Lewis that draws all of us together like this? Because yes, he's a good apologist, but there are many apologists. He's a good novelist, there are many novelists, and they don't have the same, I think it would be a rare thing to see that many people of such diverse backgrounds and interests coming together for this one person. So as we were going into Westminster Abbey, I just was kind of contemplating this, and the reflections that followed came at, I think, something like 2 a.m. in the morning on the plane back, so I had plenty of time and um, middle of the night hours to flush them. The Abbey is a house of faces. They meet you at every step, at every turn, for this great church is, in many ways, a hall of heroes, a carved memorial to the kings and heroes, warriors, artists, and statesmen who have crafted the story of England. I felt almost haunted that day. In each alcove, grave, sculpted faces arrested my glance. Emperors glared a challenge down at me from their pedestals. Martyrs wailed their faith with eloquent eyes. I dropped my gaze to the floor and remembered that the words of poets and novelists, priests and composers were cut in the very stones at my feet. I lifted my eyes and found the face of Christ, calm, fierce, lovely, reflected through figures glimmering and dancing in a hundred colored windows. So great a cloud of witnesses, the words from the epistle to the Hebrews sang in my head. Perhaps it was then, as I pictured Lewis in company with that multitude, that I first perceived his continuing power to draw and shape so many. After two hours of a marvelous service crowned with the truth that Lewis himself had found and striven to tell, all spoken into the air of that storied, sacred place echoing down the decades to us, I began to understand. We came because Lewis lived a great story. The best tale that Jack Lewis ever told was the tale of his own life, and that story lends a power to his words that time cannot dispel. In his essay on stories, Lewis wrote of the atmosphere viewing his favorite romances. Some tales were steeped in a certain air beyond the cycle of new events, an air that struck the reader with a sense of otherness, a sense of something beyond a plotted sequence, whether the long, awful dark of outer space, or the chill, pure sky of northern myths, the greatest stories let us enter, for a moment, in Lewis's words, a sheer state of being that stirs our souls to life with hunger, awe, or wonder. 
but human lives have atmospheres as well. Some lives, like those stories that Lewis loved, are marked by a vibrancy so potent that we taste the numinous in their presence or their telling. The life of C.S. Lewis is a romance in and of itself. His story bears the smell of pipe smoke, the taste of beer, the atmosphere of hearthsides and shabby college rooms in which fast friendships formed and strong opinions volleyed forth with brusque good humor into the small hours. In his tale, the fresh air of long walks and longer thoughts flows free. His elements are tea and common sense and high learning and the call of distant hills. But into this lively picture flows an even fresher wind from the vast beyond, the heady skies of imagination. Who would have thought that an Oxford Don, skilled in logic, the best-read man of his generation, whose intellect cowed countless students and peers, could countenance a fairy tale? The atmosphere of Lewis's story grows rich and strange as we marvel that the mind at work in miracles wove also the tale of a little girl named Lucy and the love she had for a lion. Walking trees and tea-drinking fawns peer around the corners of Lewis's life. Dragons roar through his dreams and gave his story an atmosphere in which any number of wonders might take place. We relish his life because it gives us hope that our own stories too could quicken with the wind of imagination and with a spirit yet more glorious still. In his pithy experiment in criticism, Lewis identifies a number of key qualities belonging to the kind of story that he calls a myth. He describes myth as a story that is a permanent object of contemplation, more like a thing than a narration, which works upon us by its peculiar flavor or quality. Myth, he contends, is a story not dependent on literary finesse or narrative twists. A tale of absolutes, it deals with impossibles and preternaturals. Myth, says Lewis, may be sad or joyful, but it is always grave. Last and most important of all, Lewis believed that in reading myth, we encounter some facet of reality itself. We come up against something clothed in story which will move us as long as we live. In tales of dying gods or kings returned or great seafaring heroes, we apprehend some aspect of eternal reality. Myth, at its best, gestures to Christ. And the life of Lewis was the best kind of myth. Not because he was sinless or brilliant, not because he was a legend, but because he turned or tried to turn every facet of himself to the love of God. And that makes a perfect person mythic in the end. And let's go on from there. That brings the formal part of the evening to a close. We've only shot our, overshot our deadline by eight minutes. Not too bad. Um, please come and buy some books. Um, Ten pounds or eleven if you have them. We will sign them. Contributors and Peter. Once you have uh, read enough of the book to feel comfortable doing so, please uh, do go onto the Amazon website and give us a review. Have a short. Uh, give us some stars. Uh, you have uh, to do this in order to, uh, to get the book up the rankings and get it more noticed and, and so on in searches, etc. So that would be really helpful to us if you could do that. And lastly, I will say, please help yourself to refreshments. Uh, and we will we'll start the meeting in a few minutes. We'll gather for that. And I will put a, a sign-up sheet for the Walk to the Perch next week. If anyone's interested, I'll put that on the end of the table over here. That's all. That's all. Thank you for coming. Thank you.